Hi, everybody. Welcome to Beyond the Cover. This is Jeff Ayers. John Robb will be joining us shortly. Uh, I get the awesome power and fun to introduce our guest. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of such awesome novels as Presumed Innocence and Testimony. And the brand new book that he is here to talk about today is The Last Trial. Scott Giroux, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be with you. Thanks to thanks to John too for both of you having me back. So thank you. Well, thank you. Um, he's going to come on in a sec, but uh, talk a bit about your new book, The Last Trial. Uh, well, for those people who uh, remember uh, either the book or the movie of Presumed Innocence. Rusty Savage's sort of uh, elegant uh, and clever defense lawyer was Sandy Stern, uh, a native Argentinian, uh, and so an immigrant to the U.S. And uh, this novel follows Sandy Stern, uh, now 85 years old, as he is about to try his last case. He's defending an old friend, uh, a former Nobel Prize winner in medicine, who is accused of fraud in securing FDA approval of a cancer medication. Uh, And so Stern is faced with uh, both the problem of, uh, you know, figuring out what his old friend really was up to and much beyond that, sort of trying to figure out how you value another life. Um, what do you say at the end of a life about, you know, what, whether or not it was well lived? Well, I have to say the timeliness of your story is quite surprising. You have uh, science research. You have the uh, question about life and death and things like that. Um, Obviously, you didn't plan that, but did you plan that? <laughs> no, I wish I wish I had that kind of prescience. I do, I, you know, I do think um, when I started thinking about um, what to, what I wanted to write about next, um, I was uh, I, I was mindful that you know healthcare is now eighteen percent of our economy, and um, so, you know, it seemed like a subject that, uh, to some extent, everybody's going to be interested in. Um, and, and, it, and that really was a starting point when I thought about what I was going to do. And I, it's always hard to remember this stuff, but I think I was interested in the world of pharmaceuticals even before I decided this was going to be Stern's book. Um, and... Uh, and I, at first I didn't know who the defense lawyer was, and then um, not very far into it, I realized you know, Stern was the perfect, perfect candidate because uh, um, Stern, is, as a character, has always made an appearance, whether it is uh, very small uh, or in a larger role in every single one of the Kendall County novels. And... Um, you know, he's sort of the first citizen of Kendall County, I guess. 
And, but when last seen in Innocent, which was the sequel to Presumed Innocent, he had cancer. And he, you know, I, I don't think it overstates it to say that he appeared to be on the ropes. So when I started to think about, um, well, how can I be writing about him, you know, eight or nine years later, um, the, the, you know, the, the nature of the medication um, immediately became part of the plot and part of Stern's availability because, as it turns out, uh, he was one of the first experimental patients on this cancer medication. Uh, and in point of fact, it has literally saved his life. Uh, my wife is in cancer research, so I totally love that angle of everything. Uh, one of the well, things she I can love tell you then. She, she can tell you then everything uh, that is um, wrong with the way um, I describe the, uh, the, the, medic, the, the, the approval process. I have always struggled to be scrupulously accurate about the law, and I have to say when it came to the FDA, FDA approval process for medications, I finally met my match. This um, <laughs> is so elaborate and so detailed uh, and so technical that uh, I really had to accept the fact that I was going to have to shorthand it if, if, yeah, if no. the novel was going to be 1,200 pages. So you know all of this. E exactly. Hand. Yes, it's amazing how many hoops you have to jump through just to get even something simple. But, well, yeah, you, you understand. Uh, I, I love you using Sandy Stern again, but do you regret aging him because he's now 85? Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, to, to, to a great extent, um, I mean, if I want to go back to him, I guess I can set a book in 1996 uh, when he's more vital. Um, but I've always followed sort of a natural timeline. Some of my... Uh, you know, I wrote a book called Ordinary Heroes that was set during World War II. Uh, so I'm not against, uh, you know, writing things that are more historical. But, uh, you know, my characters have tended to age um, in coordination with me, which is Stern started out 15 years older than I am, and he's still 15 years older than I am. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, Rusty's pretty close to my age and always will be. So, um, but, uh, so I don't, um, I, I don't regret that this is Stern's last trial. I don't, as I said, if I, if I want to write another trial book with Sandy Stern at the center, it's going to have to be set in the past. But I won't say I'll never do that. Well, you could theoretically have him come back for one final case in his 90s, even if he wanted to. It's possible, but it's, well, I mean, the last trial makes very clear that um, trying this case is beyond the current levels of his stamina and even uh, his powers of concentration uh, early in the trial, he makes several critical blunders. And, uh, you know, one of the things he is dealing with is the consequence 
of age and realizing that uh, you know he's going to he's going to give it everything he's got, but that's still not as good as Sandy Stern at his best, say thirty years ago. Uh, so uh, I think he's pretty well resolved that uh, this is his this is his last you know his his last pass in the bull ring. Right. Well, hence the title as well. Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, I'm curious, and th- this is one of the themes of the book I liked, um, finding humanity in the world of law despite the limitations. How do you find that? Well, look, um, you know, there's a really uh, wonderful book I, I uh, like by a guy named James Boyd White who uh, was the sort of uh, inventor of the, the subject of law and literature, treating legal texts like the Constitution uh, and, or the Declaration of Independence and um, analyzing their language as you would a poem. And um, White was a graduate student in English uh, at Harvard, and he wandered into a classroom when he was, or a courtroom when he was thinking about going to law school. And he, he wrote about um, the capacity of the law to give voice in its own strange way to suffering, that, um, that you know, people are, who are usually mute uh, are um, given voice by, by the law. And uh, I think that that's a unique way of looking at the legal process and realizing that, you know, what is behind every legal problem of every kind is, um, you know, is actual suffering. Uh, in the case of, uh, of Kirill Pafko, who's Stern's client, uh, there are mm-hmm. cancer patients who uh, supposedly have died before their time because Kirill is accused of having uh, hidden the fact that there were serious adverse reactions and allergic response to this medication, um, which admittedly helps a lot of people, but... Um, it kills more than he has acknowledged in, in the process. So, um, you know, and I, 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 I mention what White um, talks about in The Edge of Meaning just because I don't think people usually see the law that way. Uh, they see it as, you know, very formalized and uh, unemotional, uh, and yet uh, White's perception of it is that that it, it you know that it's it's giving voice to what is often mute pain and suffering, and I think that's you know that's a that's a really neat way to look at it. You know, the dead can't speak for themselves, but the law does in you know a criminal courtroom when somebody's on trial for murder. Well, where does justice then fit in that? Um. Well, I, I, I think, um, you, you know, there, there are big ones at you. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry? Well, I'm just throwing big questions at you. Sorry, but I'm just... No, no, that's fine. That the, yeah. You know, why not? 
Why not? It's a time to be philosophical. Um, you know, one of the things that um, you accept if you've been practicing law as long as I practice law is that um, justice is not just one outcome. Uh, so it, we look at a case like Carroll's and we say if he's guilty, he ought to be convicted, and if he's innocent, he should be acquitted. Uh, but that, that's not the way the law looks at it. And the law looks at it and says, well, what's the quality of the evidence against him? And um, if, if, the, if the evidence is weak, uh, then you can say both a, a guilty and a not guilty verdict are just. And um, justice, I think, at least as a lawyer thinks of it, is a set of outcomes within um, all of which are reasonable. And what you're trying to avoid are the, the unreasonable outcomes because life is unreasonable enough on its own. And so the, the ultimate task of the law, uh, as, as Stern would articulate it, is to, um, is to make the little bit of life that human beings can control more reasonable. Uh, and, and that if, if reason has been imposed, you know, in the face of chaos, then there's, there, that, that's the job of justice. I like that. That's a great answer. And when you're writing these novels, you you have control of those outcomes, and that's kind of one of the reasons I love reading your books and legal thrillers in general. Um, why do you think readers enjoy reading legal thrillers so much? Um, you know that that's a that's a great question. Um, and obviously, because I get accused a little like Dom Perignon, who invented champagne by accident, supposedly, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always called the father of the legal thriller. And uh, we have a lot more books about law and lawyers today uh, than we have traditionally. Obviously, you know, we've always had things like the, the Merchant of Venice or Bleak House, um, but, um, y you know, you don't have whole shelves of, of those kinds of books, at least when I was growing up. And I think it really reflects the uh, incredible dominance that the law has come to have uh, in American society. And I think that is due to um, several factors, but the, but the biggest one is how much more of one nation we are today than when I was a boy growing up. And, um, you know, the idea of being able to get a bagel in Birmingham, um, you, you wouldn't even think about it. And now, of course... Uh, there's probably not even a small town in this country where you can't, can't find a bagel at the grocery store, at least. Uh, and so we've, we've right. shared, we shared many more 
customs, our life is more nationalized. And in the process, uh, as some people would complain about, uh, our life has become more secular and more, you know, dominated by secular institutions. And certainly the only secular institution that can rival, you know, schools and religious institutions in making judgments about, you know, what's moral and how people ought to behave uh, is the law. And uh, so, you know, when, you, when you're a single nation, you begin looking for single answers to very complicated moral questions like um, abortion or surrogate motherhood or whether gay people uh, can marry. Uh, and, um, you know, the people look to the law um, to provide answers to those ultimate questions of value that, and to provide those answers in a way that everybody in the society um, can adhere to, if not agree with. Uh, and so, um, well, when you have an institution that has really taken over that role of sort of, you know, defining national values in many ways, um, it becomes... Uh, it becomes important for people to understand it. So I think the increased influence of the law over over our society, um, and, you know, I've given just one set of examples, but there are many. Um, right. uh, you, know, uh, you know, you can't swim in the high school swimming pool even though you, your taxes built the bloody thing because, you know, the, the liability insurers say you can't. Um, you know, that's a lawyer's decision. And uh, so people are more curious about the law just because it has such huge impact on their lives. That, that totally makes sense. Um, and I hadn't thought of it that way either. Uh, you're no longer practicing law, is that correct? Actually, that is not correct. Um, ah. I am still a partner in a, an international firm called Denton's which is, although um, it's, it's now called by this other name, it's actually a firm I went to work for when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago in, in 1986. So um, I have, I've been there throughout my career. I haven't been a full-time lawyer um, since sometime in 1991 or 1992. Um, but I still do a little bit of legal work. I actually... Um, had some correspondence today about um, a question that actually was a, <laughs> I had to write to the head of the firm about an issue with with some fees that were owed but um, you know so I, and I don't practice a lot of law I don't want to pretend like I do um, and whether I'll still be a partner at Denton's next year uh, is, I think, a pretty open question in everybody's mind, including mine. But um, it's been a good long run there. And, uh, you know, I still do little pro bono work. I have one paying case. Uh, and um, so I am still practicing. Mostly, though, and this has been true for years now, I am principally a writer. 
Well, I was going to ask, how, how do you juggle the writing with the legal world? Well, um, you know, as I said, um, most days I am a lawyer exclusively. Twenty years ago, my days really were divided, and I spent, um, you know, if, if I didn't have to go to court in the morning, then I'd write in the morning and practice in the afternoon. Uh, and that was my routine for many years. Um, eventually, you know, that begins to dwindle. Um, you know, your, your friends retire, uh, your clients retire, um, <laughs> and, uh, you, know, there's, you know, there's less to do, and, of course, you're, you know, you're, you're happy about it, <laughs> to tell you the truth. <laughs> right. uh, I tried my last case. Oh, boy. Um, I think it was seven or eight years ago. And uh, I remember walking out of the courtroom. and It's a criminal case, and we had won, which is a rare experience in the life of a criminal defense lawyer. Um, and I thought to myself, this little voice suddenly said to me, I don't need to do this again. Um, you know, it's a, it's a huge burden when somebody's liberty hangs on your shoulders and uh you know I, I thought our client was innocent and shouldn't have been charged and um you know the case ultimately was resolved the right way but um you know that and and, and that's why you know my heart was saying to me you know uh, you've done it you don't need to do it again there's nothing you have nothing left to prove to yourself Okay. Um, so hypothetically, I'm just kind of curious. You've written so many great novels over the years, and most of them have not been made into a film or a series. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, which one of them would you most like to see made into something like that that hasn't? Uh, well, um, you know, like, um, like everybody else, I've had a lot of things get bought and not made. Um, and, uh, you know, there have been two miniseries and a TV film, a pilot from one of the books. Um, so there's been a lot, <clears throat> actually, um, that has been filmed. Um, but uh, years ago, Dustin Hoffman bought one of my books, which was... Uh, called Personal Injuries. And, you know, it's about a guy who's been forced to work undercover for the government in an investigation of corrupt judges. Uh, and it draws a lot on my own um, real-world experiences uh, because I was involved in that kind of case when I was an assistant U.S. attorney in Chicago. Uh, and I still think that would make a great movie. Dustin tried for a number of years, uh, I thought he'd actually got a pretty good screenplay out of it in the end. But, um, you know, Dustin, whom was just always wonderful to me, uh, is famous in Hollywood for dithering. And, um, you know, he just didn't quite get it together even when 
one of the studios said to him, okay, we'll make this movie. So I've always thought there's a great movie there in that, in that book, but, um, you know, that went all the way through the process. And uh, ironically, one of the drafts of the screenplay, I think the last one that the studio signed off on was, um, was rewritten by Elaine May. So, um, you know, who was a pretty famous screen doctor. So, um, right. but, but, uh, anyway, maybe somebody will pick it up. I, I, I'm always encouraging people to take a look at it. It'd also be a really good limited series. So, but. Oh, well, I'll keep my fingers crossed. I'd love to see yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, the, 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 so, the economics get very complicated, Jeff, when somebody is paid a right. lot of money. Um, and, uh, they, they've got to get their money back out of it, so or get the stake in the, the new production. So we'll see. But every now and then, I raise this in conversation. Well, I, I have no sway, but I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. I'd love to see it. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the last question, and John does apologize. He got stuck in a conference call. Um, where can people find you? Well, you know, in, uh, in our very, very changed world, uh, that is a, uh, a different, a, a difficult question. But uh, obviously I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter, uh, you know, at Scott Turo, and uh, the website is uh, scottturo.com. I'm on Instagram, uh, so you can certainly look in all of those places uh, with, with the publication of the book I'm bound to be um, pretty active on social media for a while so uh, they'll certainly be able to hear from me yeah so is your tour turning into a virtual one since that seems to be the trend right now uh, I'm you know uh, it's a little bit of an open question, uh, but I can't imagine that everything could possibly be rescheduled. Um, so I, I may do a series of live events later in the summer, say in June, um, and, you know, that's possible. I think the people at Grand Central are pushing very hard and trying to figure it out. Some of the places that I was scheduled to go, like the Poison Pen uh, in Arizona, the National Writer, Writer Series up in Michigan, I'm going to do those events anyway, and I'm going to do them uh, virtually. Um, and you know, some of the bookstore chains are, and even the indies are trying to figure out exactly what, what they're going to do. Um, we'll right. all wait and see, you know. We'll all, we'll all just have to see. Obviously, there's a lot of news that's drowning out the space for writers, and uh, I'm not faulting that judgment, um, but uh, it, it's it's a it's a better time to be a best-selling author and a well-known name, but it's not a great time for anybody right now because simply because so many bookstores are closed. So, um, right. But, but Grand Central is going to go ahead and the 
the book will be in the stores on the 12th of May. So. All right. Well, hopefully people will do their online duties and go out and get this wonderful new book of yours. And, Scott, I want to say thanks again. And sorry again about John, but um, it's been a thrill for me. So thanks, Scott. I really appreciate it. Well, Jeff, thank you very much. My best to John. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll look forward to the next time. All right. Sounds great.